This podcast is brought to you by Athene. As the world changes, so does perspective. Is the sun setting on a bull market or is dawn breaking on opportunity? As a leading provider of fixed annuities, Athene was built for times like these. Working together, the future couldn't be brighter. Athene, driven to do more. I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, I sit down with entertainment executive turned healthcare advocate, David Goldhill. We talk about his new company, Sesame, and how he hopes this online marketplace for discounted health services will revolutionize the way Americans receive and pay for medical care. But first, what's ahead in taxes? Taxes were a big issue in the first presidential debate, but neither candidate even mentioned an idea that would radically simplify the current system and give everyone a tax cut as well. It's called the flat tax. It operates in over 30 countries in Hong Kong with considerable success. The idea is simple. Throw out the entire federal income tax code and replace it with a single rate of only 17% with generous exemptions for individuals and dependents. That's right, the whole federal income tax code, which combined with all the attendant rules and regulations comes to more than 10 million words, the whole thing would be junked. As a result, a family of four, for example, would pay no federal income tax on their first $52,800 of salary and only 17 cents on the dollar above that level. There'd be no tax on their savings. Everyone's tax bill would come down. You could literally do your income tax on a sheet of paper or with a few keystrokes on your computer. The current code is a cesspool of complexity and corruption. A huge amount of the lobbying in the swamp of Washington revolves around taxes. We have the ugly spectacle of special interests vying for special breaks that are buried in the code and shrouded with incomprehensible language. Coping with this code involves immense amounts of time and money. The IRS estimates We spend six billion hours a year filling out tax forms. Experts tell us the American people spend over $300 billion a year complying with this monstrosity. This is why the flat tax is a moral issue. Add up what we've expended in time and money over the last 20 years, over 100 billion hours and literally trillions of dollars, and imagine if those enormous resources have been applied to creating new products and services and new medical devices, new cures for diseases, how much better life would be for all of us today. The tax code we have now is beyond redemption. A magazine once conducted an experiment. It asked 46 expert tax preparers, people considered the best in the field, to prepare the tax return for a hypothetical family. And you can guess what happened. No two tax preparers could agree on what the family owed Uncle Sam. Remember, this from people who make their living preparing returns. The flat tax would be especially helpful in enabling us to get a faster recovery from the economic damage done to us by the coronavirus. The sooner, the better. And now, my conversation with David Goldhill. My special guest today is David Goldhill. He's currently CEO and co-founder of Sesame, an online marketplace for discounted health services. He serves as board chair of LeapFrog, which focuses on hospital and medical safety. 
In the past, among other things, he's been president and CEO of TV for Universal Studios, CEO of GSN, operator of Game Show Network, and others. And he's also the author of a notable article several years ago in The Atlantic called How American Healthcare Killed My Father, which was the basis of a book called Catastrophic Care, Why Everything We Think We Know About Healthcare Is Wrong. Also another book, an eye-opener called The Real Costs of American Healthcare. Uh, David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Steve. So how did you go from entertainment to uh, healthcare? It's one thing to uh, write about it, but quite another, you're now uh, in with both feet. So describe how you got interested in this subject, tragedy, and why you've uh, come to the situation you're in today. Sure. Well, uh, I did not know very much about healthcare until I think like a lot of uh, stories in America, I had something tragic and fundamentally mystifying happen to me. Uh, My uh, father walked into a hospital one day short of breath and even though he was there for observation, someone apparently mistakenly put a central line in him got an infection, an infection he uh, subsequently uh, died of without ever leaving the hospital. You know, a healthy man coming in after work. It was, uh, you know, obviously an extraordinary personal tragedy. And, and what got me interested in healthcare as a subject is when I found out how prevalent that type of mistake was. You know, there are estimates that uh, the number of Americans who die from infections in hospitals is somewhere near 100,000 a year that the total medical deaths are a multiple of that. And it's something that was completely hidden to me, uh, something I was totally unaware of. And I think there's greater awareness of it today uh, than it was when it happened to my father over a decade ago. What got me interested in healthcare was the realization that despite the fact that many of these mistakes could be prevented in a relatively straightforward, low-cost way, hospitals and other medical institutions didn't seem to make those efforts. And I've I got to, you know, point out that I'm not a big believer in the, you know, good versus evil way of looking at the world. Most people want to do good. Certainly most people in healthcare want to do good. When you see this era of accident, you're seeing something that's institutional. And what I discovered and what I've worked on since is that the incentives in healthcare really aren't designed to serve patient needs the way we think they are. They're designed to serve the needs of the system's ultimate customers, which are really insurance companies and government agencies. And that one of the symptoms of that is that accidents, including fatal accidents, which would destroy the credibility of any other industry, has barely an impact on the delivery of healthcare. You know, the restaurant industry couldn't kill 100,000 people a year with food poisoning and survive. Uh, even as you know, a, a, a single case of serious food poisoning can shut down a restaurant or, you know, shut down an entire chain. And again, this is not, you know, the, the rate of accident in American healthcare is not because people are bad. It's just because it's not as pressing an issue as others for the survival of hospitals and medical institutions of various times. Uh, before we get to the system itself, quickly describe Sesame. It's sort of like uh, Expedia, a price line for for medical services. Yeah, that's, ex- that's exactly right. I mean, Sesame is in some ways the simplest concept in online services. It's a marketplace. People who sell services, in this case doctors, get to list their services and people buy them. Uh, Patients buy them. That is as simple as it gets in online and marketplaces like the ones you mentioned have been transformative for the past 20 some odd years, but not in healthcare. Uh, 
And in healthcare, of course, the issue is that most of us buy our care through intermediaries, and the intermediaries determine what we can buy and how much we pay for them and who can offer them and exactly how the services are described. And what Sesame is is an effort to get away from all of that. It is literally a full scope, everything from you know, an urgent care telemedicine appointment to surgery. We let doctors and clinics and similar facilities, diagnostic facilities, list their services for an upfront cash price, and patients can buy it. And the intention behind Sesame is, A, to recognize that an increasing number of Americans, whether they know it or not, increasingly they know it, are really paying for their health care out of pocket, even if they're insured. And direct pay, upfront payment locks in truly massive discounts from insurance prices, even in network prices. And it's frankly a better way for providers or clinicians to serve patients because they get away from all of the complexity and time commitment and bureaucracy and paperwork and codes and collections issues of, of insurance. And so it's what we're trying to do is bring together motivated clinicians and you know patients who are in need of better value. You're national, but what areas are you focused in? Well, we're national for telemedicine, which is something we just created a few months ago when they, the only market we launched in last year as kind of a beta test was in Kansas City. Thank you to the medical community and people of Kansas City for, for tolerating and supporting such an experiment. I think it's gone very well. We this week opened up in New York City and Houston. Uh, most of our business is physical practices, but in during the summer, during the COVID shutdowns, Physical practices weren't open. We had to sort of defer our relaunch in, in Houston and, and New York. And so we built a telemedicine platform so that physicians could directly market their services. I think we've had roughly 500 physicians sign up to do so. And just on this point, because it gives you a real sense of why Sesame is so innovative for clinicians, what it means is that a physician can charge a patient for a telemedicine appointment what one of the big telemedicine companies pays them anyway. And instead of this huge spread between what a telemedicine company pays a physician and then charges its company or insurance company, the patient pays that low price directly. We'll get into that uh, shortly, where, as you say, you can get telemedicine for uh, $25, $35 but it ends up going on a bill of the current system, a couple of hundred dollars, and uh, the providers don't necessarily make money on it, if right. given the perverse way it works. So uh, what you're uh, providing, uh, many of these uh, physicians don't uh, take insurance, right? They uh, will offer you uh, just straight cash and cut out all of the uh, intermediaries. Well, so, some of our physicians do have uh, non-insurance practices. Many of them take both insured customers and uninsured customers. What we're enabling them to do, though, is know they can collect from the uninsured customers, find the uninsured customers. You know, the independent physicians we talk to will tell us that the cost of third-party payment for them, which means all of the paperwork, the bureaucracy, the doctor's time talking to insurers and trying to collect, trying to collect from patients who haven't met their deductible, means they calculate that an insurance dollar to them is worth only 60 to 70 cents. That the cost is so great for a small practice of managing third-party payment obligations. And so what it means is they can turn around and say, look, if you'll pay me a cash price up front, I can have a meaningful discount uh, from the insurance price. And the patient, you know, who doesn't have insurance, or even if they do have insurance, benefits from that. So uh, let's go into the system itself, a very peculiar system. 
you blast the myth that spend has something to do with life expectancy. You say there's virtually no connection between what a country spends on health care and life expectancy. Well, uh, that's a little bit of an inside baseball question, uh, because whenever you go to a, a health policy conference, someone puts up a chart that says the U.S. spends, you know, 18 percent of GDP on health care and does very poor on life expectancy compared to the other rich countries. And I think to the average person in the political debate, that sounds very, very compelling. Except the next country down in the OECD list is usually the UK, which also has very low life expectancy, a totally different healthcare system, and actually spends less on healthcare than anybody else. And when you really look through the chart, I have this fun thing I do whenever I give a presentation. I actually show that chart and then I pull the U.S. off and you literally have, you know, something that doesn't solve for Lyme. Why is that? Because for all the attention paid for healthcare, you know, what we find when we look at the data is that it's the ninth, 10th, 11th most important factor in life expectancy. All the other things about how we live, how we eat, the safety of our communities, uh, disposable income, education. Smoking, drinking. Lifestyle. You've pointed out jobs that aren't uh, so dangerous as uh, they were in the past, many occupations. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's exactly a great point, which is that there's no question that medical innovations in a couple of areas have led to a lengthening of life expectancy, but nowhere near the impact the changes in lifestyle and changes in income have, you know, throughout the developed world. And I'm afraid one of the mistakes we make when we talk about healthcare is that we tie it to this sort of ultimate, it's keeping us alive, which is an unfair expectation, but more importantly, skews the debate in terms of our priorities as a society. And this is all over the West. This isn't just in the U.S. Another myth is that uh, technology drives up healthcare costs. Uh, I mean, look at this conversation we're having, right? We both casually in our day-to-day use now a way of communicating with each other that 30 years ago was incredibly expensive and terrible quality 20 years ago. Um, It's just utterly absurd. What drives up healthcare costs is a lack of competition, our willingness to subsidize all demand, which just pushes up price, and a preference, both in the U.S. and again around the world, some of these things are not just about the U.S., where we basically say spending on healthcare matters more to society than spending on other things, even if those other things contribute more to your health. And so those big decisions we've made as a society is what pushes up the price of healthcare. We're just pushing up the demand. It, it reminds me, and, and I'm displaying a little bit about my entertainment background, but when you've agreed to budget an expensive movie, every part of that movie becomes expensive, even the catering. This is the world's most expensive movie. And what's interesting, so, you know, people, I'll give you an example. People will say, well, we pay doctors too much. We pay doctors roughly double what other countries do. And by the way, that's not unusual in the U.S. We pay almost all high-earning professionals more than high-earning professionals in other countries. So doctors are no different, and that's the labor market they compete in. But here's the fun thing. If we pay doctors zero, literally made them all work for free, and they still showed up for work. We would spend $3.4 trillion on healthcare. It's, but by the way, you can do that with anything. If we paid zero for prescription drugs, we'd still pay well over $3 trillion for healthcare. Almost any factor that someone says that's the reason. You know, Bernie Sanders was running around saying, 
do you realize the healthcare companies make $100 billion and audiences would guess? That better not be true, because if they only make $100 billion on $3.7 trillion of revenues, that's got to be the least profitable industry on earth. So you take away the profits, you make that zero, I'm at $3.6 trillion. It, 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 what's happened is when you have no cost discipline and we have no cost discipline, you're going to see it in everything. Now, another myth let's deal with up front is the real cost of health care. That if you add up, as you did in your book and the article, what we actually spend, not just co-pays, deductibles, out-of-pocket, but in taxes, in lost salary, a single person would probably spend far more on health care than a house, and we don't even know it. It's well over $1.2 million, you figured, when you factor in inflation. And for a couple, it's over $2 million, and they don't even know it. Yeah, even worse than that, Steve, as I wrote that, I think, seven or eight years ago, and I haven't updated it. It hasn't gone down. <laughs> and, and, but but it's, it's, it's important, and here's why it's important. We have as individuals and as society, an insurance model for healthcare. And it's true in much of the West as well. This thought is if we get sick, that's going to be expensive. Someone else is going to pay for it. And we think of it sort of the same way we do as home insurance, right? If someone's unfortunate enough to have their house burned down, those of us who don't have our houses burned down all contribute something to the rebuilding of the house. That's how insurance works. And that's the model. And it's based on mid-20th century concept of healthcare, where most healthcare was pretty major when you got it and was very episodic. Something bad happened to you. It was expensive. You got to get fixed. The problem is that's not how healthcare is anymore. Almost all healthcare spend is on things that are chronic, that last a long time. Almost everybody gets one over the course of a lifetime. What that's done is it's inverted our financing system. We don't have health insurance. We have the opposite of health insurance. If you were putting in $15,000, $25,000 a year, every year of your working life or your employer's doing it for you, what risk are you mitigating? The average person or the average household is putting in, when you look at the taxes and you look at the premiums on both sides, employer, well over a million and a half dollars, a tiny fraction of people spend that much amount of money on healthcare in their lifetime. So imagine if you bought a house for $100,000 and you pay $200,000 in premiums to protect the house from burning down. That's where we are in healthcare today. It's really, as you point out, it's not for unforeseeable events like a stroke or something. It's really just taking an estimate of what a health insurer thinks a company will spend next year on its pool of employees, add it up, add in administrative costs of the company, a profit. And so it's really just prepaying an estimate of next year's expenses, plus the overhead and the profit. Well, and the interesting thing is, you know, the mentality of it is the more we can cover in the system, the better off the consumer is. But when you turn it around, I think the consumer is paying one and a half times the cost of the service they're being protected against. Suddenly, you want to be covered for less, not more. Now, that is not the way the average American thinks, and it's not the way the average politician thinks. But if the average household is putting in a million and a half bucks to protect against the possibility of a few hundred thousand dollars in healthcare spending, the rational response is, let me have some of my money back. Just protect me against the things that are true catastrophes. We're not at that place yet in terms of our understanding. 
because all around the world, we still have this mid 20th century concept of what a healthcare system does instead of a contemporary concept of what it's doing. So uh, just going back to your example of the house, it would be like buying an automobile for 35, 40,000 and paying $80,000 in premiums to cover a catastrophe with it. Well, it's, it's exactly the same. And what's interesting is uh, I, I remember reviewing a book uh, by one of the uh, ACA's primary architects. And he wrote, all of us start our healthcare books with an example of some actual human being. You can't write a healthcare book that doesn't start with a, a, a human example. And, and his was about a single mother who um, unfortunately suffered uh, cancer in her mid-40s and was facing something like $80,000 in bills on a, a limited income. And thank goodness she had health insurance because $80,000 is a lot of money for almost every American family. So you have to go to the footnotes before you realize that her health insurance policy at that time, this is seven or eight years ago, cost her $15,000 a year, which means she basically pays for cancer treatment every five years. That's not insurance. It's closer to loan sharking than it is to insurance. And it is how our system works. So let's get to uh, the nubbin of it. There was a famous economist, Kenneth Arrow, who made a point that a lot of people accept is that you cannot have real markets in healthcare, free markets. It's just too complicated. The patient can't know what a doctor knows. And uh, you can't negotiate a price when you have a heart attack. You need these intermediaries, third parties. You mentioned insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid on the government side, large employers to do it for you because it just is beyond your realm and understanding. Right. And as a result, though, as you point out, who the customer really is determines how an industry operates. So given the fact these third parties are the real customers, a hospital knows that its revenues depend not on how well it serves its patients, but on how well it negotiates with insurers, with the Medicare, Medicaid for reimbursements with large employers, rather than on satisfying the patient. Well, walk us through how that works. Well, I, I will. And I, I first want to say a second about Kenneth Arrow, because that, that article is obviously very seminal in health economics, but it was written in the early 60s. And a lot has changed in the early 60s in terms of the information balance between healthcare and patients. And a lot has changed about the healthcare being delivered. And again, Arrow's world was that episodic world of, oh my God, you have cancer, we have to cut that out tomorrow. The world we live in today is, you have cancer, here are the alternatives you need to consider for treatment. And what Arrow didn't think about, because he couldn't have, it wasn't that world there. Or the whole concept of second opinions. I mean, well, The whole concept of second, but also the concept of choice and the recognition that patients have to deal with, do I want aggressive treatment? Do I want other types of treatment? Do I want lifestyle-oriented treatment? Are decisions that patients make in our system all the time, even about the most severe illnesses, without that guidance, without a system that's designed to serve their needs? Directly to your point, the success of a provider of healthcare is not, did I provide better care? Did the patient understand it? Is the patient satisfied? You know, am I seen as a great provider? The success in healthcare is, how good a deal do I have with insurers? There's also a political element to it, which is how protected am I against the government agencies that provide, for certainly hospitals, over 50% of my revenue. 
Unfortunately, as we know, hospitals that get paid the highest uh, reimbursement levels are not the best hospitals or the most efficient hospitals or the most innovative hospitals. They are the hospitals that have the most market power where their position in a marketplace is so dominant that an insurer has no choice but to take whatever deal the hospitals offer them. Great if you're running a hospital, not so great if you're designing a health system around quality and outcomes. And the point I've made generally is that was an inevitable consequence of saying people can't be customers, so we'll empower governments or intermediaries to be customers. The idea that they are dealing with the same thing and that they have the same incentives that you do is misguided. And I think if, um, if, if I could have asked Kenneth Arrow a question, it would have been, I can understand your premise that consumers are going to have a hard time operating as they usually do in healthcare markets. Is it possible the alternative would behave worse? You know, I think one of the symptoms of what it means not to be responsive to consumer needs is the use of information technology in healthcare. A lot of the issues we see around costs and efficiency and communication with the patient, helping the patient navigate extremely complex pathways of care, assuring coordination among institutions, even understandable bills would have been alleviated if the healthcare industry had made the type of investments in information technology that every other industry made. Uh, when President Obama came in, he looked at the inefficiencies in the healthcare system, the extraordinary lack of IT investment, and said, all right, we'll have the government essentially force hospitals if they want to be reimbursed and doctors if they want to be reimbursed under Medicare to buy electronic health records and we'll force them to use it and we'll pay for it to encourage them to do both. And, you know, that certainly sounded like it made sense. Um, and certainly the effort was to get healthcare up to speed. But how is it that an industry with $3 trillion of revenue wasn't making this investment on its own? Every laundromat had them 20 years ago. Exactly right. I mean, your dry cleaner has invested massively in information technology that reduces their ability to lose shirts. Why weren't hospitals that are meaningfully larger, meaningfully more profitable, investing in technologies that significantly reduce you know, patient accidents and incorrect prescription delivery and all the rest. And that's the question that needs to be asked, not answered, right? The answer isn't, well, let's just give them money to do so. The answer to that question is, unlike your dry cleaner or your motel or you name the industry, they didn't have the incentive to do it. The strange thing is, healthcare probably computerized third-party billing long before almost anybody else had IT. So it's not as if they're incapable of investing when it works for their business model. Improved patient service, improved coordination, improved outcomes just isn't essential to their business. And that's a terrible thing to say, but I think most Americans have experienced that one way or another. The customer actually decides what the seller can offer. It's just the customer are insurers and Medicare. And so if you have an innovation, you got to convince an insurer or you've got to convince Medicare that that's something they will reimburse for. Well, that's an extremely complicated and time-consuming thing to do. Uh, and you don't have a lot of incentive to do it. You go to healthcare innovation conferences and somebody invariably says, how come there's no Steve Jobs in healthcare? Well, there's extraordinary numbers of unbelievably bright men and women trying all sorts of innovation in healthcare. Obviously, on the therapeutic side, it's remarkable. 
There's just no business opportunity, not enough of a business opportunity. One of the things we try to do at Sesame, one of the long-term goals of Sesame, is by taking advantage of the fact that a meaningful part of American healthcare, about $250 billion now, is spent out of pocket directly by patients, we might be able, through a marketplace, encourage some of that innovation. So now if I'm a doctor who's thought of a clever pre-diabetes package or a different way of packaging maternity care or a different combination of services that works for certain patients but not all, I can list them on Sesame and I can find buyers. We're about to do this in maternity, in fact. You're not going to be able to do that uh, in the insured, in the reimbursement market because I've got to convince some giant company to reimburse that to everybody. But in the individual market, I can actually say, here's an interesting new product. If it works for patients and it seems like a good value, it starts to succeed. And so in that sense, what we're trying to do in Sesame is take this small corner of the healthcare market and build the incentive for innovation that really helps patients. Uh, and that, you know, what we hear also is a way that, that clinicians can be innovative in, in, in their therapeutic services. So uh, quickly walk us through, uh, we mentioned earlier, telemedicine which we've had 10 years ago, grandparents talking to their grandkids. Now it's seen as, oh, COVID has given us this great breakthrough on telemedicine. Technology's been around for years. And yet even now, third parties making a cost five, six times what it should. So I think telemedicine is almost the perfect illustration of why the third party payment system does the opposite of what we think we're doing. And I don't want to sound critical of the innovators in telemedicine because what they have done is they have fought through this thicket for a long period of time. But the reality is there's no technological innovation in telemedicine. It's a text or a phone call or a video. And as, as you say, Steve, grandparents have been doing it with grandkids for 15 years or so, 10 years or so. This is clearly not some massively complex technology. What's changed? It's now reimbursable. Period. Because of COVID, Numbers of many insurers said, we will now reimburse telemedicine appointments or it's no copayment or it's free, but only if you use our preferred telemedicine provider. We have a deal with one of the big telemedicine providers. If you use them, it's free to you. Let's think about what that means. Instead of encouraging competition in this service, I've now done the opposite, right? I've entrenched somebody. So what do the economics of that look like? What happens is, if you look at, and I think I looked at the only public company, it's unfair to pick on them. They're all in the same position, but Teladoc happens to be the only public company with big numbers. If you look at Teladoc last year, Teladoc did, I think, somewhere around 4 million telemedicine appointments. They pay doctors somewhere around 25 bucks, so call that $100 million. Their revenues were over $500 million. But Teladoc didn't make a $400 million profit. Teladoc lost money. So if you cut through all of, the, all of the financials, essentially what you have is the American healthcare system paid $533 million for 4 million appointments, which is $135 an appointment for something that doctors got paid $25 for. What's the delta between 135 and 25? The cost of third-party payment. Because Teladoc didn't make any money doing that. They will make money as that scales up with luck and good fortune although that market's becoming very competitive. But it tells you everything you need to know, right? Well, here's a company who became big by selling employers and insurance on using telemedicine. But the cost of doing so overwhelms the cost of the actual service the patient is getting, which is talking on a doctor on a phone for 10 minutes. 
More from my conversation with David Goldhill in a moment, but first. We think the presidential election is a contest between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, that one or the other will be taking the oath of office on January 20, 2021. But two things are coming together that could turn our world upside down and give us shocking and frightening results. They are massive use of mail-in ballots and very close races in a number of states. Most states using widespread mail-in ballots as a result of COVID-19 crisis don't have the experience to make such a system work in a trustworthy and efficient manner, in contrast to a state like Oregon, which has been utilizing mail-ins for several years. That's why in the primaries held after the coronavirus hit us, over 558,000 mail-in ballots were disqualified. In the general election this November, that number could run into the millions, generating a tsunami of lawsuits in hotly contested states. Sloppy procedures concerning the distribution and collection of paper ballots could lead to considerable fraud, which will also undermine faith in the integrity of the election process and trigger lawsuits. With state outcomes uncertain for an interminable time, you could get a situation where neither candidate garners the necessary number of electoral votes to win when they are cast in December. That's why we must consider the possible wild scenarios. Under the law, the House Speaker is next in line for the presidency after the vice president. Thus, if neither the Biden-Harris or Trump-Pence tickets have formally won the Electoral College by January 20, Nancy Pelosi would be next in line. Or consider these scenarios. If Biden and Trump come up short in the Electoral College because of disputes about outcomes in various states, then under the Constitution, the House of Representatives elect the president. But each state has one vote. That is, Wyoming with one representative has the same vote as California with 53 representatives. Republicans today control more delegations than the Democrats and thus could select Trump. But the Senate elects the vice president. If Democrats win control of the Senate, they could select Kamala Harris. Thus, you could get Trump as president and Harris as vice president. Or depending on how the races go for the House and Senate, you could end up with the reverse. Biden as president and Pence as vice president. These once inconceivable scenarios dramatically underscore the need for officials in the courts to act responsibly, such as enacting mail-in deadlines that recognize postal service realities, employing elementary safeguards to ensure the integrity of mail-in ballots, and opening many more polling places than now planned to accommodate people who want to cast their ballots in person, otherwise recording an ugly and avoidable disaster. And now, back to my conversation with David Goldhill. So you take an insurance company. Yeah, they try to deny claims and all that kind of thing. But in essence, they grow by having bigger revenues, especially with the uh, Affordable Care Act, which had that 15% margin in there. So they want more expense. They want profit. But uh, the, the, the more money things cost, the better they do. Yeah, this this must be one of the great disconnects between the political understanding of the world and the business understanding of the world, right? Which, you know, politicians and policymakers have said, we can rely on the health insurance companies to push down prices, use their leverage, use their power, use their superior knowledge to keep the costs of care down, make sure excess care isn't being conducted, be really disciplined on price. And they do make a great show up. But here's the problem. There's very little competition 
in the corporate health insurance market, which is really a a self-insured administrative market, as you say, their margins, 15%, are set by law. And so cutting expenses doesn't increase your margins, right? It actually reduces your profit. So what's your incentive? Now, it, 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 it amazes me that people can't see that one of the likely contributors to the, the uh, cost of, of care increasing is that if you're insurer, you make more money if the cost of care increases. You don't if it increases tonight over what you were planning for today. But over the course of a year, you're going to earn 15% above what you spend on care. So let's uh, get to the big contributors of this. The big year, 1965, would you say cemented the principle that there must be someone between you and the purchase of health insurance, the intermediaries? Tell us about Medicare and Medicaid. Very popular Medicare, yet there are myths with uh, Medicare. First myth, cheap, low overhead. Absolutely false. Well... Yeah, I mean, that, that is one that, again, a lot of people don't understand. I mean, Medicare looks like it spends a tiny fraction of its benefits. Well, it does spend a tiny fraction of its benefits on cost. And a lot of people say, well, that's the wonderful thing about Medicare, right, is that where private insurance costs by law, 15% to administer, Medicare can administer for 1%, 2%, 3%. That's got to be better. And it's a very important factor in the way people who propose uh, uh, or favor Medicare for all are a public option. The problem is you're not measuring the same thing, and the difference is massive. So the metaphor I like to use is a bank without security guards. If all a bank was concerned about was getting its overhead down, it wouldn't hire security guards. And it could get away with that if you didn't count the amount stolen as expense. So Medicare does not count the amount stolen as expense. So the way to understand Medicare isn't that it's fantastically efficient. It's that it doesn't administer the program at all. The biggest problem we have in Medicare for patients is massive amounts of excess care that is often dangerous, particularly for our oldest citizens covered by it. Um, But the rate of accidental death and the rate of death from excess treatment is heavily concentrated among Medicare patients. Well, you cite a study where I think Medicare itself did a study that one-seventh of their beneficiaries in the hospital at an adverse result? Yeah, it, it, is, uh, it is one of the most frightening studies ever. And that's, again, Medicare's own inspector general. They've done another one since, which I think shows some improvement. And we've seen some improvement in LeapFrog as hospitals have committed to this. But what people, I think, don't understand about Medicare is that Medicare is a political program. And the optics of that program is, to politicians, it's we pay the lowest prices. And it's to the industry, it's we pay low prices, but we never say no. And to the patient, that sounds great, an insurer who never says no. The problem is the population that they're insuring is the population most vulnerable to medical error and medical excess. And so you think as an individual patient, wow, this is terrific. Medicare pays for everything. Well, Medicare paid the hospital for killing my father. And, you know, That is appalling. Well, you've pointed out that uh, now I may be the numbers out of date that there's at least $70 billion of fraud in Medicare. 
and and yet it's counted as payments to beneficiaries. That's uh, <laughs> that's like robbing a bank and saying, calling it a loan. That's that's why that's why I use that example. Is that if, if if the bank didn't count the amount stolen as expense, you should fire the security guards. But no bank does fire security guards, even though it pushes up the operating cost. It, it comes from a mentality of, again, managing a program for the optics. The optics to Medicare's beneficiaries are look how generous Medicare is. The optics to politicians is, look how little we pay for each service. And the reality to the industry is, look, Medicare patients, for example, now almost never leave a hospital inpatient procedure without rehab. Why? It's a second diagnostic code. The amount of upcoding, excess coding, secondary coding among Medicare patients is massive. And if it was just a bookkeeping issue, that would be fine. But of course, we know it's not. They're actually performing all of this unneeded care on patients, and it's not good for them. So uh, they uh, supposedly charge low prices and make it up on uh, volume, which you don't really need. (laughs) You know, hospitals report to Medicare that they lose money on every Medicare patient. And I don't believe anyone's ever opened up a hospital that didn't take Medicare. One of the fundamental issues in healthcare policy is that all we talk about is money. So we sit around and say, you know, Medicare for all will be cheaper and more efficient, or a public option will bring some of the benefits and competition to private insurance, or private insurance can drive down unnecessary care. And what we forget is all these ways of paying for care affect the actual care we get. If you pay too little and administer too little, you encourage excess care. If you administer too much, you encourage a massive amount of bureaucracy and complexity and cost. There's no free lunch in how you pay for healthcare. How you pay, it, healthcare is not this black box that all we do is argue over how we pay for what's in the black box, even though if you listen to political debates, it's all we talk about. It's what's in the box that matters because it's what's in the box that drives how healthy we are and how well we respond to treatment and how good that treatment is. And what's in the box is actually driven almost entirely by how you pay for the box. But we don't acknowledge that in our politics. Or you get peculiar things like hospitals because of Medicare, certain things you can't charge to Medicare, they dump it on the uh, emergency rooms. Massive amounts of cost shifting, all accounting stuff, but... Uh, delivers up the illusion of uh, cheap here when it really isn't. Well, and, and I think, you know, that gets to, again, something we're really interested in Sesame. Sesame's prices are about what a doctor is willing to take for specific services and what a patient's willing to pay. In the rest of the economy, those numbers are really important because they help us understand value, real costs, and trends where we have enough supply and something not enough supply, where demand is growing, where need is growing, uh, in healthcare terms. Every single price in our healthcare system is fantasy, is monopoly money. It's not real, they're reimbursement rates. People talk about costs when they mean prices. People talk about prices when they're talking about administered reimbursement. And each time we do that, we say to ourselves, okay, well, we're protecting some patient from a higher price, or we're making sure some a physician is adequately compensated, but then we freeze them there. And they're all stopped watches, right? They're, they're, they may be correct because maybe you were smart enough to set the right price at that moment, but everything changes. It's interesting in healthcare, the everything changes that we accept in the rest of the economy, we insist can't possibly occur in the healthcare economy. And it's cost us a fortune. 
because we don't really understand what anything costs in healthcare. We don't understand what the price should be of anything. Um, and we don't even really know patient need because we don't let markets operate. I, I'm not a market fundamentalist on this. I'm completely comfortable with a social safety net. I am completely comfortable with giving up efficiency in some services you know, to protect people against it. The problem is we've now taken this to a point where to get back to your telemedicine example, we're selling $25 doctor visits for $135 and losing money. So uh, potentially big change is coming because as you said, now that uh, we pay family policy over 20,000 a year, employers have run out of room to take money from employees to pay for insurance. In other words, typical household incomes, a little over median incomes, a little over $60,000. If we didn't have the crazy system we have in healthcare, it'd probably be 80,000. And employers are now going for high deductible plans because they feel they've just run out of rope. And so you said for the first time, unless it's a catastrophic illness, a lot of people are now paying health costs out of pocket, something that really hasn't happened in 60 years. Yeah. Walk us through the implications of that. Well, yeah, I mean, the first implication for patients is it's bad because I'm paying out of pocket in addition to massive premiums for health insurance. It should be one or the other. We should be paying for our routine care directly, and the price of insurance should have gone meaningfully down from doing that. After all, insuring something I'm going to buy anyway is just a way of adding to the cost. That hasn't happened, I think, because of a number of the regulatory mistakes we've talked about. Uh, one of which has been in a lot of cities, we've almost completely killed medical competition by encouraging gigantic hospital systems to buy up independent medical practices. And you don't have a lot of price competition. That's been very unfortunate. But it's not hopeless. And the reason it's not hopeless is because I think people are getting wise to this. And we're, frankly, running out of room. As, as the point you make is exactly right, for 20 years, a meaningful percentage of the increase in compensation that employers could afford to pay for middle uh, wage employees was eaten up by higher healthcare costs. You know, you may think that's free to you, but of course, from the employer's perspective, they're paying it to you. They're just paying it to an insurer instead of directly to you. But, you know, in a zero inflation economy, you run out of room to keep that going. I think when you look at consumers looking at 5000 $6,000, $7,000, deductibles on $50,000, dollars $70,000 a year incomes, that becomes unsustainable. The contribution we're trying to make at Sesame is for our corner of healthcare, showing that prices can be meaningfully lower for lots of care. And I mean meaningfully. I mean, an MRI. A typical MRI, you go to a hospital and you say, I'm a cash payer. They might bill you $2,200, $2,300. If you have insurance and you have an insurance discount, the deal the insurer has at the hospital, maybe it's $950 or $1,000 or $1,050. On any given day on Sesame, there's a radiology clinic in, in, in your neighborhood that's posting that MRI for $375 or $450. That's a gigantic savings. And that gigantic savings isn't because we've done some special deal or we're subsidizing. It's because we have brought transparency, some price competition. And look, the only reason our economy, anyone ever lowers their prices is to get customers. And we're now giving physicians the opportunity to do that. So uh, the uh, 
so-called empire is going to strike back uh, against uh, services like yours. We got a little taste of it with telemedicine. They uh, took something that's cost 25 and lose money at 135. How do you break that? Is it companies saying, uh, we're going to determine what is deductible, not you, the uh, ostensible insurer? Yeah, so I think it's I think companies have been very, very passive. Um, and look, they're not in the business of healthcare. You're 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 an auto manufacturer, you're running a supermarket, you're running a website, your job is not to transform the healthcare system. You're uh, desperately competing in your own industry. And I think we have to stop expecting employers to do the job that policy won't. Having said all that, I think with employers having imposed on their employees, reluctantly, frankly, but out of, you know, cost, massive cost concerns, very high deductibles, they shouldn't let insurers run deductible spending through networks, non-networks, all the nonsense that insurers do uh, for the stuff they reimburse. What sense does it make to say to somebody, you got to pay these $3,000, but you got to pay it within our network. You have to meet all of our you know, paperwork requirements, adding enormously to the cost uh, when it's the patient's own money. And remember, almost every major company in America is now technically self-insured. What, what we call their insurer is just an administrator of their own insurance. This is something I think they can do without having to get actively involved. And I'm not sure it's such a terrible thing for insurers either, as they deal with the political implications of leaving people with such high deductible costs, the idea of trying to control all of that spending with the architecture of insurance uh, makes no sense. And it does make no sense, right? What is the point of saying to a beneficiary, we think you should have what they call skin in the game. But by the way, you have to use it with our preferred providers or our contracted monopoly or at our hyper. What's the point? It's, it's the exact opposite policy to what you would think makes sense with deductibles. And if we're gonna impose these deductibles on people, we can't then also say, and you gotta spend way too much on healthcare of your own money under the deductible. Which one of the reforms, I guess, would be removing all these restrictions in health savings accounts. You should be able to have one even if you don't have a health insurance plan if you want. Uh, you should be able to buy over-the-counter uh, medicines if you want. It's uh, your money. And uh, you, you know, I don't, I don't think this is the case because I'm not a big believer in conspiracy theories. But if you looked at a lot of regulation in the healthcare system, you would actually say it seems designed to push up the price of care. Even the stuff that you think is supposed to push down the price of care, like the 15% restriction on insurance company profits, has the effect of pushing up the price. And that's a very difficult thing to explain in policy debates, but we see the effect of it every day. Your example on HSAs is exactly right. You know, loosening the restrictions would actually encourage more money that chased medical services that were fairly priced and you know, very few people use HSAs for major surgeries or emergencies. It's not that part of the business where people are exposed and anxious and don't have enough information. It's the regular care that we all buy now on a routine basis. What do you think of the administration as we close up uh, trying to get transparency with the hospitals, with the insurance companies, what uh, CMS is trying to do in HHS? As a general principle, I think greater transparency is a good thing. I am not completely comfortable with it, and here's why. Transparency without real competition is often a tool to put a floor on prices. You know, we saw that in the airline business. 
which is you may remember in the old days, airlines used to run sales against each other. Now they basically never do. They run them as a group because the second somebody reduces their prices, another airline matches. So you get no benefit of additional consumers, right? Because I know that because prices are completely transparent and can be manipulated in the digital world, I am never going to be able to say, hey, I'm cheaper. Let me get more customers. It's not a posture airlines can have. Why? Because there's only a few of them. And so what you do is you rarely discount, right? Because I'm not going to get a benefit. You know, Americans not going to get more customers than United with lower prices than United. They may both reduce their prices because demand is low, but they're not going to compete with each other on price. And I worry now that in so many markets, one or two big hospitals dominate the market, not just for hospital services, but also for physician services. Transparency may wind up operating as a floor, which is completely perverse, but it wouldn't be the only time it happens. Just one last thing, how a cash market might work. You uh, cite the example of East Los Angeles, an area with a lot of undocumented uh, people, so they don't have the insurance system, and you've got a rather amazing healthcare system there. Well, I think you do in, in uh, you know, many parts of the country that have um, large numbers of undocumented, you'll also see doctors that are used to being in the cash market. The prices are often terrific. Um, but what's also interesting is many of those clinics use information technology in a more advanced way than a typical health clinic. Why? Because it keeps their costs down. It improves their communication with patients. It's easier for everybody. In other words, because they are serving an uninsured population, they have to be better. And that, to me, you know, as I was uh, spending all those years sort of writing and talking about healthcare. That was a major inspiration for Sesame is seeing that, you know, look, I'm not, I'm not going to exaggerate. You're better off being insured than not insured in our current system because prices are so high. But you're also better off for the money that comes out of your own pocket pursuing physicians and services that will price uh, in, in cash because... Uh, you are more likely to have an experience that's attuned to you as a consumer and a patient and less attuned to what the insurer needs. To me, Sesame will be a success, not just if it drives down the price of healthcare, that's important, but if it enables patients to understand more about appropriate care and quality of care and enables them to judge the healthcare system and hold the healthcare system to account, we think it takes experts to do so. But I must tell you, your insurance company does not base its in-network group on who the best doctors and best hospitals are. The entities that are in-network are the ones that took the economic deal. And so our hope that the insurers, and this is, takes our, our discussion full circle, our hope that insurers are looking out for us on quality and appropriate, that's a false hope. And my hope in Sesame is that the benefits of competition in the relatively small corner of the market we're working will help to shine a light on the potential for competition and openness to make improvements in quality and accountability, not just price. David, thank you very much for your time and uh, good luck in uh, bringing about a revolution in an area that badly needs it. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. Great talking to you. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.